Good Dog. Welcome to Good Dog Talk. I'm Fiona Mathias, and I'm joined today by the academic Professor Erica Cudworth. Her study, Muddied Living, looks at how we live with our pet dogs, and it sounded like a great way to kick off Good Dog Talk and set up some interesting doggy dilemmas to come back to further into the series. So, what kind of dog owner are you? How much are you prepared to compromise for your dog? When can a dog just be a dog? Do people really like dogs that much in wider society? And how easily do we give up our canine companions when things start to get difficult? Hopefully, these questions and more will set you thinking about how you relate to your own dog. So in terms of my academic research, I've been interested for decades in different forms of inequality, particularly gender inequality and how that relates to our relations with the non-human world. So other animals and the environment more broadly. And for the last 10 years, my, well, one of my key interests has been the kinds of relationships we have with dogs and how living with dogs shapes human lives. So what I now call the dog study started in 2010. And what I did was I kept a daily diary of my observations and my encounters during the walks with the two dogs that I lived with uh, on Walthamstow Marshes in East London. And I did that for a calendar year. I then followed that up with interviews. And most of the interviews I undertook whilst I was walking with people with their dogs. So I just used to meet them, we'd go on their normal dog walking route, my dogs would come too. So these were interrupted interviews, <laughs> barking and ball throwing and mm -hmm. squeaky toys and all sorts. But mm. I thought it was more authentic mm. than taking people into my living room or yeah. going to their living room. Did you have quite a clear idea of, of what you were trying to discover? A lot of the literature I'd been reading and the area of animal studies or critical animal studies that I work within tends to be very negative about human relations with companion animals so tends to emphasize the exploitative relations of dog breeding the disposability mm. of pets mm. uh, and, 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 and the problematic idea of the pet so I was very familiar with that but I also felt that something else could be going on within those relationships mm -hmm. other than these negative things yes so it was to think about those right really right. so all the people I walked with all the people I interviewed would see themselves as responsible or good dog owners um, <laughs> these are people that walk with dogs every day whatever the weather mm. that cared about the welfare of their dogs so yes it was a deeply biased sample <laughs> but I wanted to see what else was was happening. And when I first started to present the data at academic conferences, people thought that my initial findings were very much shaped by having a London sample. If you went to the countryside, you'd find something completely different. Mm -hmm. So when I moved to a village in Leicestershire, I thought, OK, I'll do a smaller set of interviewing, which I did. And I found absolutely nothing different. <laughs> what I wanted to start with was whether there's anything that 
you can say that had an impact on your study from our cultural development with the dog? Another place where I kind of came in critically in terms of the dog study was to question the sort of story told by historians talking about pets and Mm -hmm. people's relationships. And there's a sort of classic tale which says there's a shift uh, beginning in the 18th century in countries like the UK mm-hmm. from dogs as working animals, as utility animals, to dogs becoming understood as pets. And the difference is that we keep pets for our edification, for our, you know, for companionship. And so historians have mapped this transition from the 18th century through to the present day, mm-hmm. that pet keeping is something that starts amongst the aristocracy and then filters through Yes, yeah. uh, the class system and the more pets are kept in urban areas this is because of a separation between rural and urban ways of life so the less we live alongside farmed animals the more we're likely to keep pets okay so that's the understood narrative yeah. but our relationships as a species, with dogs as a species, are so ancient. I just think of pharaoh hounds, which are a dog that I particularly like. So, you know, this is a very long, very well-established history, and I think that the relationships are likely to be a bit more complex. But as a sociologist, I'm a bit suspicious about how accurate theories of history that say, that was then, this is now, are. I'm sure there's always much much more muddle and mess yes, going yeah. on in practice. And I'm also not sure about these categories of work and leisure, working dogs and pets. I think they're often a little more blurry mm-hmm. too. So in terms of where we are now, I think we're in a bit of a strange position regarding our relationships with dogs at the current time. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff in the media about designer dogs and concerns about the way in which we're trying to adapt dogs to produce our perfect pet. So certainly in the village where I live, the cockapoo is increasingly ubiquitous. Everywhere. <laughs> Hypoallergenic, good with children, friendly and playful, manageable size, etc, etc, all these things. but. The dog is such a it's the most varied of all animal species if you mm-hmm. look at the different kinds of breeds and types and we've been playing with doggy genes for many 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 centuries. Mm-hmm. So I think there's I think there's that there's a concern about designer dogs at the moment playing with dogs genes but it's something we've always done and I, but I also think that the margin of error for a dog in the UK is becoming increasingly narrow. So we have very high expectations about how dogs should behave mm. in public space. To the extent that a dog that barks at another dog in the street raises eyebrows. I absolutely agree. I think one of the, um, I can't remember who said it, but they said we expect our dogs to behave better than children now. Yes. I mean, I actually often say that I think it's very hard work for a dog to be a pet because of the restrictions that they're that they're placed under so on the one hand at the moment we've got this ever more kind of sentimentalized treatment of dogs we've got 
a whole arena that's opened up of dog consumption in terms of the range of foods, mm -hmm. different types of beds, hydrotherapy, aromatherapy, toys, doggy daycare. But on the other hand, you've got the situation where dogs are still highly disposable. The RSPCA estimates that it destroys 30% of the dogs that come into shelters or come in within its remit. In 2015, the figures from the Dogs Trust were uh, 47,500 dogs that were destroyed, which mm. is a really sobering figure. I think that's the problem. The high expectations that we have of the behaviour are part of the problem for dogs. Yeah, I think at the moment. Where does this naturally lead us to? Is it the question of what agency a dog actually has? I think the question of agency is quite interesting. So in academic social sciences, we talk about people having agency if they can transform the world in which they live in. Yes. Through a protest, through changing policy or something. And this obviously doesn't really apply no. <laughs> to the world of the dog. But agency always takes place within social systems, social relationships. And when we look at dogs, they live in what is a human-centred world. And from the dog study, a lot of people made the point that people don't like dogs very much which was something that quite shocked me at first, but the more I came to think about it, the more I think that's quite a, an accurate um, representation. And I think in the UK, there is a move towards not liking dogs very much more than in some other European countries. Um, is, that, is that in an institutional way or in an individual, on an individual level? I think it's both. I think in terms of the individual, it's about these culturally increasingly high expectations that more and more people are adopting. But in terms of institutions, I think the way in which public space is managed and in which and, and where dogs are restricted. And I think there is a difference sometimes between home and outdoor space. That perhaps, ironically, some dogs have a lot more freedom when they're in the home or in the garden than they do when they're absolutely outside yes yes they do um so for some people they would say oh the time i walk my dog is the dog's time when they get to do what they want but for others it may be that the dog gets to do what it wants more when it's like mine lying on the sofa with their legs in the air yes than, uh, than yeah. when they're outside and subject to those restrictions so it's very difficult to find spaces now where dogs can really make their own choices and do their own things. So I think this is something that in the UK has got substantially worse terribly quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think we're following the kinds of patterns that have been set up in the urban United States, in mm -hmm. urban Australia, where it's very common to have leash-only yes. parks and public and spaces. Yeah. The lack of freedom is, is problematic because it may mean in a country like the UK that dogs are left on their own more than they might be. Um, there are some <coughs> incredible figures, statistics on that from I think the PDSA pause report about 
how many dogs are left alone for more than eight hours or it's quite striking and uh, a figure I found from the Dogs Trust from 2018 was their estimate was that 85% of dogs experienced anxiety at being left alone at home which is quite terrible to to contemplate it is it's Um, so sad to actually think about that and most of the people I spoke to in the dog study this was one of their main concerns the Mm. hours that Uh, for which a dog would be left and how they could mitigate that through dog walkers, dog sitters, neighbours coming in. But people who perceive themselves as dog lovers can still be leaving their dogs for long periods of time and don't see it as as an issue, but they, they would hate to see themselves not as dog lovers. I often say we should we should think more dog or try and think more like a dog. So the American ethologist, he studies animal behaviour, studied the behaviour of dogs, Mark Beckhoff, mm-hmm. says that when he's studying dogs, he tries to think dogocentrically. And I think if we all try to think a bit more dogocentrically, we might see the world rather differently. Actually, animal welfare charities, local government... The problem we've got is not one of dangerous dogs, but it is actually dangerous to be a dog. I think it's very precarious. We've set up a situation where it's very precarious for them, and we're not really aware of that. Of the people living with dogs that I spoke to, many of them did try to some extent to think a bit from their dog's point of view mm-hmm. in terms of how long they were left and what dogs would choose to do. So I was walking in, in what way? I was walking <clears throat> with people last weekend and they said, Oh, we're gonna carry on this way now, Erica, because we think that the dog would like to go further and we've got the time. And that might be a, a very important thing to a dog to have an extra half an hour's walk or to go an extra interesting route. Mm-hmm. And many people would um there were some people when they were walking their dogs, they would kind of follow the, follow where the dog wanted to go. Right. And they want to go this way this morning mm-hmm. and not that way, rather than march them round the same way. Yeah. Do you see that as a positive thing? I did see it as a positive thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and people do forgive all kinds of dog behaviour <laughs> in the home, as I forgive. The hole that has suddenly appeared in the cover of my sofa. <laughs> and it's no doubt going to get much bigger within hours. Well, I suppose this is part of the, the, the muddy li- muddied lives that you yes. have spoken about and the, the compromises and yes. accommodations that you need to um, adopt. You, you can't not, can you, as uh, having animals no. in your home? I mean, I was actually quite surprised thinking of myself as a dog person at the level of accommodation people would make so I spoke to people who hadn't been on holiday for years and the amount of people negotiating different working patterns mm-hmm. um, with partners or other members of their families I was did you get a sense that. that that was the majority though or do you feel that they're a fewer on that side of the equation. I think my sample was biased because I mm-hmm. spoke to people who were walking daily. Mm-hmm. And that in itself that is is, yes. um, is on the positive side of the of the of the figures. 
absolutely you know at least half of people don't walk their dog mm. on a on a daily basis so it's a it's a biased sample really i do i do wonder my interviewees were very tolerant about um household destruction this woman told me how her dog a labrador had destroyed two settees and accompanying armchairs and the kitchen units and then she ends this tale by saying but he's the perfect dog now oh. and there were some people that made observations from what i think mark beckoff would call a dog eccentric perspective so they would say sometimes we think things are away but they're not away we might not be able to see them but dogs can smell them because they can smell so much better so in kind of concluding that i think if people try and think more dog then some of those domestic tensions might be resolved we've talked about the people that you talk to mm -hmm. who see themselves definitely regard themselves as as responsible dog owners but do you feel that that's a sort of false perception of mm. theirs i think so because every one of those people including me would have left a dog for far too long mm. on some occasion or other or made a decision to do something that meant that the dog was left far too long so i do think that even if people think they're dog centric you know the reasons why people have dogs lots of people said to me oh a dog makes a house a home you wouldn't mm. want to come home to a house without a dog but that implies that the dog is there stuck waiting for the human to come home. So it really does imply an important power relationship there. Um, in terms of other reasons why people might have dogs, in terms of image, there was some people I spoke to who were what some people call being in the breed. They wanted a, they always liked to have a collie or a German Shepherd mm -hmm. or a Border Terrier or whatever mm. it was. And there were some people who had kind of histories of similar breed dogs. But many of the people I spoke to had dogs from rescue, dogs with difficult behaviour. I had quite a few people, what I sometimes call the Staffy men, mm -hmm. for whom a Staffy wasn't a trophy dog, but a misunderstood dog. Right. So okay. they were quite protective mm. over that particular of the breed. Breed. Yes. Right. And that this was a lovely breed that was ruined by people treating the dogs in a particular way. Yeah. So they were often sort of serial staffy owners. Mm -hmm. As a as a result. <laughs> I have read a little bit of Mark Beckoff, mm -hmm. Unleashing the Dog, and I am starting to always pause when I do use the word owner. That language is actually accurate because dogs are commodities. Buy, sell mm -hmm. and own. I think sometimes that language helps us remember what the situation is. I mean, I think the disposability issue is a major problem and I think it's linked to a lack of understanding about the time, the commitment, the work involved um, with having a dog. 
and this assumption that people have that all dogs will be friendly all dogs will be amenable to training mm. or that it's relatively easy to train your dog it certainly is when you watch some of the programs on television yeah <laughs> um if only so i met a man in the village this morning who i've known for years who has a dog that was difficult nervous aggressive the dog had a very severe accident and now has become really pretty problematic. And so he described the dog this morning as very hard work indeed. But this is a person I know who would never mm. abandon that dog, who would always do the best for him, whether it's in terms of medical bills or walks or, mm -hmm. or daily care. One of my interviews said to me, this does link, <laughs> that there are people who have dogs and there are dog people, and that those are very different things. Mm -hmm. And I wonder when it comes to hard financial hardship or difficult behaviour, whether that distinction is really important as to what happens to the dog. Because this person was using there are dog people when she was talking about her 40 years with dogs. And she says, you know what it's like, you get an easy one, then you get mm -hmm. two really difficult ones. <laughs> <laughs> then you might get a, a few easy ones. You know, there's always mm -hmm. different kinds of dogs. You can't assume that all dogs will be the same or that you can treat them the same or that everything works with different, with different dogs. So I think it's, it can be a relationship of financial hardship, but it can be a relationship of the level of challenge that people aren't anticipating when they look for a dog and sometimes mm -hmm. if those things cross over um that can be particularly so it, it, it becomes an easier option problematic to think disposably challenging dogs and challenging circumstances both need to be looked at together really and i think if you've got a difference between people who have dogs and dog people that will make the difference as to what kinds of decisions mm. get made whether a dog's euthanized or whether it's mm. given up for rescue or whether it's not. It sort of leads to the leads to the <clears throat> question of are there too many dogs? Yeah, well it's about twenty five percent of UK households that have a dog. Mm -hmm. At least one. There I think the latest figures are estimated between nine and nine point nine million dogs mm -hmm. in the UK. And I just wonder how many of those dogs are well looked after and, and I think that's part of the thing about people not thinking like a dog and people not realising that it's not appropriate to leave an animal alone mm. every day of the week while you're at work mm. all day every day I think there needs to be a questioning of this idea that Britain is a nation of dog lovers I think that is so dangerous actually mm. and problematic because we're not um, either we need to abandon that or we need to radically rethink how we understand the roles of dogs in our society in terms of dogs and dog owners rights to use public space which seem to have been so um, increasingly limited um, and, to, and to really think about how we might 
change the relationship between people and dogs. So I do think increasing restrictions on the breeding of dogs, the import of puppies, internet sales, all these kinds of things would help. Mm-hmm. Making it more difficult to acquire a dog without really thinking about it. So, are you a person who has a dog or are you a dog person? My thanks to Erica Cudworth for setting up some really interesting questions that every dog owner should ask themselves. And thank you for listening. Good dog.